Happy day before Leap Day, everybody. We're very excited to be here. Do you guys know anyone who was born on Leap Day? I do not. No. I did once. Uh, she passed away, but we're keeping it light. Um, <laughs> I was so auspicious. going to go into more detail. I'm like, no, I, actually, I can't. That would be weird. Passed oh. away at the what, like tragically young age of like, no, no, 12. No, no, she was. Well, that's well, true. She, she died at a very sorry. young age. <laughs> Not to be morbid, but to. Uh... Oh. All right. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Curtis Luciani. And this was a damn interesting week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. Kate Cox at Ars Technica has a beautiful treatise on the virtues of working remotely or telecommuting. Mm. It's called The Future of Work Looks Like Staying Out of the Office. And I don't mind that. Yeah, first off, I have to admit a complete bias because I work for a global marketing digital transformation ad agency. I have the option of going into the office and doing my work there and attending meetings, or I can do it from home because I've got a you know VPN set up. I've got all of the apps and security that I need from my company laptop. And it has been a revelation in the way that I work and being able to strike the right life-work balance. I basically have control over my time and my schedule and my habits. And I feel like I'm more productive in terms of I have better punctuality attending meetings because like I just have to go to my computer and log in and do all the things. But, you know, aside from personal anecdote, this article goes into a lot of the practical reasons that are backed by data and studies to prove that this is a thing we should all have the option to do. And when I say all, of course, there are some jobs. You can't be a remote firefighter. Exactly. (laughs) Not a lot of remote blue collar jobs. Right. Doctors, dentists, obviously can't work remotely. Mm -hmm. Um, Um, construction workers, et cetera. But there are a ton of workers in what they're calling the knowledge sector, the knowledge industry, who absolutely can and should. And the reasons for this are multiple. So about 25% of Americans are already kind of doing this, at least some of the time. I was going to say, it can't be full time. That seems like a lot of people staying home, but partial for sure. I mean, that almost feels like the negative effect of the gig economy where you're working your full eight hours at work and then you go home at night and they're like, yeah, but we expect you to be on email. Like, I'm not sure that counts if you're just doing more work from home. But if you're able to offset the amount of hours you have to spend in the office, then obviously that's a good thing. There are a lot of people who will offer maybe one to three days per week where you have the option to work remotely. So you're still coming in for critical meetings or whatever else like that. But the idea of doing remote work like this has been around for a while. The first documented use of the word telecommute showed up in 1974 when The Economist wrote, as there is no logical reason why the cost of telecommunication should vary with distance, Quite a lot of people by the late 1980s will telecommute daily to their London offices while living on a Pacific island if they want to. Oh, economist. (laughs) Talk about nailing your uh, target demographic there. Yeah. And in the 80s, the state of California commissioned a study that looked at the potential costs and benefits of expanding telework among state employees in particular. They found that remote work enhances the quality of work life for telecommuters, including those with disabilities. It more than pays its way for individuals and for society. And the group that compiled the report determined that this should be encouraged to expand within the state government, that every state agency should have the option. So if they've known about this since the 70s, basically since the Internet was available to anybody, I almost feel like, why is it taking so long? 
mm-hmm. to get where it is. Well, I mean, there's got to be drawbacks other than the basic, like, we can't watch you. We don't know what you're doing. Yeah. So there's definitely a cultural component where they really feel like, you know, having people interface and in the office, there's this idea that it is it promotes more cohesion and productivity. But for any of us that have been in useless meetings that yeah. could have been solved by an email, we know this to just be logically incorrect in many instances. And, you know, telecommuting helps get people off the road. Obviously, it helps with traffic congestion. Right. I figured the article would be going from an environmental standpoint. Mm-hmm. They're like, fully aside from whether they're more productive or not, we need to get cars off the road. And this is one way to do it. And that's absolutely one of the points. I mean, it goes into all of these different points that are like, there are very logical and economic reasons that an employer can cut costs and improve an employee's state of well-being. There are very, very few things where that overlap occurs. Right. <laughs> Usually when a company is cutting costs, it sucks for everybody. Right. Right. But especially in larger cities that have huge commercial rent expenses like San Francisco and New York, it's really difficult to just maintain the overhead of keeping the lights on in a downtown office. You could save some costs on that. Right? And you're wasting space because if you have a housing shortage, that's a building that could be converted to apartments. Exactly. But it's being used as a second place for these people to sit on yep. their computers where they were just going to do the same thing at mm-hmm. home. Yeah. So uh, I, I work remotely, not full time, but I, I have flexibility to work remotely. I work in an office and I'm in the office physically most of the time, but there's tons of advantages to it. You know, sneak in some errands or some <clears throat> podcasting maybe <laughs> right. um, during the daytime hours. Um, for me, I think like the major two concerns that I always have with it, which I'm not saying outweigh the benefits are one, the kind of loss of the concept of strict working hours, which does seem to go kind of hand in hand with the working remotely concept. If there's not a defined time you're at the office, then you could theoretically be expected to just be working all the time. And I I feel like I've seen a change in organizational culture around this where for a long time, I think the hesitance in letting people work remotely was like, well, how do I know if they're working if they're Mm -hmm. not here? And so the, the shift that has kind of accompanied going to working remotely is like, well... Rather than people working defined hours, you know, they're just kind of responsible for a certain thing and you mm-hmm. just never stop being responsible mm-hmm. for that one thing, you right. know, whether it happens late at night, early in the morning, <laughs> yeah. you know, or even if you're on vacation. So, so that's another thing is the loss of the idea of really clear time off yeah. for people when they're working remotely. And then finally, I, I do worry in a more general philosophical sense about like, oh, you know, the atomization of society, you know, how how much you can do in a day without talking to or interacting <laughs> Never with interact a with single human. other person face to face. And, you know, just thinking about, you know, what does that do to our political culture? What does that do to our ability to be organized? Well, our but, general mental health. I mean, there's yeah. a, we're social creatures. We need to interact with people. It's just like, could I interact with the guy who lives next door and not get in my car to do it? And am I going to interact with that guy to counteract mm-hmm. the fact that I now work from home and never see anybody? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, and the nature of interaction has expanded to include telecommunication, right? Yeah, I, like, think, I think you do get some social benefit from that, but I definitely right. think it is different. It is different. And and the difference can be a drawback for people who may be more extroverted and mm-hmm. their energy source does come from being around people. But for introverts, my God, this is just yeah. like the holy grail. Right, right? it's great. Yeah. Like yeah. for me, I have, I'm kind of an ambivert. I can really sort of go both ways, which means for me, this is the sweet spot because on a conference call, 
I am polished, I'm professional, like I can do it kind of all vocally. And sometimes I'll yeah. even do it on video chat if they really want to bring in a little bit more of that interaction. But not all companies have kind of cottoned on to this. And some of them have actually used telecommuting kind of as a sneaky way to do layoffs. You know, mm-hmm. like uh, there was, I think the USDA had a flexible or remote working option. And then they relocated their offices away from Washington, D.C., and basically told their workers, listen, you either have to relocate to Kansas or you can't work for us anymore. Like right. doing shysty stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, is- yeah. And there's also concern that, um, you know, if you're not plugged in with your office cohort, could people be getting paid in like radically divergent mm-hmm. and unfair way? Right. You know, and you don't have any idea. And, and you have no idea because, because you know, you're not showing up to the office and seeing that uh, mm-hmm. someone who's technically junior to you just mm-hmm. bought a new you know, <laughs> Porsche or what. what there's or not so enough like, jealousy to know. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. The, but but just the sense of being able to assess where you stand in the organization, you know, that is something that is probably a concern to some people. Well, it's a know. concern to a lot mm-hmm. of people now, especially women in the workforce, because salary transparency is not a thing. Yeah. Even if you go into the office every day. Yeah, you, you don't get as much of that as you'd like. No, yeah, no. Of course. And, and, and there are some companies that have adopted something called a row workplace or results only workplace environment, mm-hmm. which basically says, if you're getting your work done, how you do it, we don't really give a hoot. You know, yeah. if you're yeah. doing it from this Pacific Island and not the London office, or if you're doing it at midnight because you're a night owl and that's when your brain is functioning super yeah. high, as long as you are getting these results that we have defined done, do it however. And the more people who are doing it, the more podcasts we're going to have in the world. So I'm <laughs> all for it. Yeah, let's get yeah. a few more of these. That's right. I mean, these podcasts are helping to keep the commuters sane anyway, right? Like, That's right. That Where will our audience be if no one commutes anymore? <laughs> oh, it's a double-edged sword. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. Uh, you guys prepared for the end of Moore's Law? I'm I, I'm gonna say no because yeah. I don't I don't know what I need to do to prepare, that's, but I I am ready to start prepping. No, like, that's tell the me right answer. What my go to bag <laughs> needs to have, I, the water supplies, whatever I need. David, according to David Rotman of the MIT Technology Review, we're not prepared for the end of Moore's Law. Well, he's All right. <laughs> he's laying it down. Is this sort of coincidental with like the rise of our AI robot overlord? No, or? no, not really. This is just. Well, I mean, it affects all of us in a way, but it's a specialized issue in high-tech engineering that uh, I can pretend to understand because uh, <laughs> the article contains a concept that I have heard before right. <laughs> a couple times. There's some nouns that you know. So, it's... so as we all know, of course, Gordon Moore in 1965, he made a prediction that the number of components on an integrated circuit would double every year. Mm-hmm. What's interesting about this principle is that it's essentially a kind of ideological principle for people who build computer chips in the sense that like they're actively trying to make sure that they live up to Moore's law year oh, to year. It's become you know, like a it, challenge. It's not, it's not as though this is just kind of happening naturally and every year they're like, oh, it's look. It's a benchmark it, they're yeah. striving towards. Yeah, they're, they're striving every year to make a computer chip that is, you know, essentially contains double the complexity. And so we're talking about at that point needing to find more and more clever ways to build smaller and smaller and smaller circuits so that you can fit mm-hmm. more. It's an expectation on, on innovation. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but but it's it's interesting because by specifically focusing on this area to augment our capacity for computing power you are investing in an area that's going to be broadly applicable. There's a sense that like the rising tide, mm-hmm. you right. know, of these computers getting more and more powerful lifts all boats. But 
apparently it is getting to the point where a lot of people are looking at the challenges of continuing to uphold this pace of doubled capacity Mm -hmm. every year. A lot of effort is now going into either finding ways to leverage specific software applications to run more efficiently on Mm. what we already have Mm -hmm. or to build more specialized types of chip. And so is the drawback to this that certain industries are going to get left in the dust or certain functions for these chips that wouldn't necessarily be getting a lot of money thrown at them for research are going to fall behind. That, I mean, I, I think you can infer things like that. The article mm-hmm. itself does mm-hmm. not go that far because it simply kind of hews to the, like, the main principle, which is just the idea that like, yes, when people are building a more powerful chip, they're building essentially a tool for everybody, th- for, for everybody. Not in the sense that it's like in the public domain, of course, but but in the sense that it is something that can be leveraged different ways by different people. Right. I think you also, in a corporate sense, you get into the notion of proprietary stuff. Mm -hmm. If you're not just making pure speed, if you're making this specialized design thing, you also now own that thing. Mm -hmm. And you then get the control over who has it, how much money do you make when you license it, that sort of thing. It ends up being a roadblock. But people like it because it ends up making them more money. So it's a difficult. Or is it a roadblock because it's innovating in a specific field that has needed specific types of innovation and can continue to benefit everybody, even if it is under some kind of licensing? Right. There is a benefit to that specific group, Mm -hmm. no doubt. Like I'm thinking of Industrial Light and Magic and how George Lucas, when he was making Star Wars, had to develop a lot of practical and special effects technology just to realize his vision, which revolutionized the entire movie making industry and continues to. I mean, ILM continues to lead the way and the developments that they've made have cascaded, you know, well beyond George Lucas's franchises and sci-fi. Yeah. And the article actually closes with a couple of the scholars who are involved in tracking this change talking about, you know, maybe it's time that we really increased our public investment in driving computer technology forward because there's huge challenges coming our way. We need the people who are the most capable computer engineers to be looking at like building the most powerful, flexible tools they can for the future and not getting pulled into, Mm. you know, individual like corporations who are trying to like maximize the power of just their product, but Mm. not Mm -hmm. thinking about just driving computing forward Mm. in general. Well, I think we are still meeting Moore's law, right? As of like right now, we're still keeping up with it or have we already fallen short? I think I think it. That's a good question. It wasn't entirely clear. It sounds like we've maybe fallen a little bit off of Uh-oh. it, but there's there's still significant investment. And it's still, you know, obviously it's a hugely profitable thing if you can make a lot of sure, money doing it. Sure, you benefit from that it's as It's just, well. it seems like slowly over time, and particularly in the past five years, these companies are looking at the investments mm-hmm. they make and sort of hitting these targets and going, uh, I don't know, we mm-hmm. could probably... Well, uh, and I think it's an important metaphor for life. You get older and you give up your dreams. That's <laughs> what we all just need to let go. I think that's... Say, we're not going to ever achieve what mm-hmm. we thought we were. Our parents are disappointed and that's just how Good it's going to be. That's yeah. the takeaway. Gordon Moore, everyone's right. computer dad. <laughs> Next link. Next Next link. link. Well, I have an important question for everybody. Why aren't we transparent? Oh, like physically invisible? Yeah, like how come you can't just see inside us and see our organs? Melanin? Be gross. Be gross. (laughs) (laughs) Could be a matter of like sexual selection. You know, maybe there were transparent humans and like... No one, mm. no nobody one wanted, really to, wanted to get When it you it see that knows. lower gut, it just turns everybody yeah. off, right? <laughs> well, it turns out it's actually because of fat. 
Fat is Yay! the specific yeah. substance that is just opaque for every species. It's not great. But <laughs> because we know what it is that makes us not transparent, there are scientists working on how to make us transparent. Ugh. Not in a daily sense. We couldn't live without our fat. But in a medical research sense mm. where we can take organs and transparentify them and then look at them from a, a very close-up way that we can't look at already because when you're looking at stuff on the cellular level right now, you have to cut it up into slices mm. and that messes up the structure. You no longer have the same thing to look at anymore. So Ali Ertuk, the director of Helmholtz Munich's Institute for Tissue Engineering and Regenerative Medicine, has been sort of at the forefront of this. He has formalized and sort of perfected this process by which you make biological creatures transparent. Ooh, and uh, so it's creepy. What do, we, <laughs> what do we have to do to become transparent? Well, there's several steps. First, you want to be dead because uh, yeah. if you're not, you're going to die from yeah. the process. You have to soak yourself in formaldehyde so that mm. you don't rot as you're doing this process. Mm -hmm. Then if you're young, you can just move right on to step two. Your tissues are soft and plump and healthy and everybody thinks you're adorable. If you're <laughs> older, as we age, we sort of start to accumulate these stiffening collagen proteins right. all over our body. And the stiffness is a problem. It almost sort of makes us brittle mm. once you start taking out the fat. Sure. So older humans, which is, of course, all of these donations that they're getting and working with are from <laughs> people who died mm -hmm. as older humans. They have to use, and this is a real word, zwitter ionic detergent, Whoa. like Twitter, but with a Z. And huh. zwitter ionic detergent somehow dissolves the collagen and opens these little pathways that liquid can get into and just sort of generally softens up your whole body. Then once you're good and soft, you have to put yourself in this fat dissolving solution. Like soap, it sort of just loosens it all and makes it all grabbable. And then you rinse and then you have to replump yourself with some water and with some special dyes mm. that are designed to be attracted okay. to different body parts. So then you've <laughs> re-dyed your whole body. Now you're this jellyfish with colors floating through you. And then you can 3D scan this stuff, pump things through and see the actual action. And they've got some really cool videos on the side of just like not, I think they're computer models. They're not like a photo of the guy's brain because you still are looking at stuff on a microscopic level. Uh -huh. You're looking at this vascularization and these you know really tiny functions. But there is a purpose to all of this. In the future, they're of course hoping that we can 3D print organs. That we don't have to rely on organ donation from mm -hmm. someone who tragically right. died young. We can just print you a new kidney that will work better because it's going to be with your DNA and you're not going to reject it and be mm. on immunosuppressants for the rest of your life. So it's, it's important research. But yeah, we're all going to be like undersea creatures that are transparent because there's no light. So That's who cares? It's a revolutionized fashion, you guys. Yeah. Like, if true. the trend to having like certain clear, semi-transparent and colorfully dyed body parts, who needs tattoo makeup anymore? That's right. Just right? sort of remove the fat from a section of your skin. You'll probably live. That's <laughs> fine. So, so when we talk about making people transparent, we're we're talking about, I mean, how how deep down are we seeing? I mean, do like we, all the way through. So we see like our tissues are naturally transparent. It's the stuff inside our tissues that sort of like okay. makes us not. So you see you if you theoretically make the body transparent, you're seeing fluids just moving through. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, have you ever seen like those fish, like deep sea fish that right, are clear sure, and you can like sure. see the stomach and you can see the heart thumping in yeah. there and yeah. you can see all that. I mean, you're not clear like a window. 
But <laughs> no, you were like I in 2085, <laughs> spinal skeletons are super hot now. Everybody oh, show awesome. off your spines and your <laughs> pelvic bones <laughs> so, really big. Wait, the skeleton's not transparent. Though, no, right? no, no, no. These no. are all these are all done Basically, on isolated it's the skin, organs. Tissue. Right, tissue. Soft and tissue. The, the muscle. Right. We're getting down to So they're picking specific organs. They're like, let's make this brain transparent and then we can look at how the neurons are laid out. Right. We can see how stuff flows. They did a kidney. And they said it actually showed them a bunch of structures that they didn't even really know were in the kidneys Ooh. prior to this. Because when you're on that scale, mm-hmm. to even look at it, you're destroying the kidneys. So mm-hmm. you're just tearing up this model that you're supposed to be looking at. Mm-hmm. And so they're finding, and of course, it's all tiny, tiny, tiny. And it doesn't in any way say, how are we going to 3D print this stuff? Because it's ridiculously tiny. That's part of the problem. Mm-hmm. But to at least be able to see it is mm-hmm. uh, is a step forward. That's super cool. Yeah. yeah. So we're all going to be But they got to be dead. Yes, you have. So far, you have to be dead. They I don't can, think they're in any. But they could, it could be a dead person. You could still have the brain, and you're zapping the brain, and you're you're watching what happens. This guy's lab has to be a total horror show, right? Oh, probably. <laughs> I'm sure nobody yeah. wants to go in there. Like for for the yeah. ones that didn't go full transparent or semi, like right, they're just kind of milky. <laughs> <laughs> probably uh, so exciting though if you find yourself in an area of science or medicine where it's like, yeah, I got a real like evil looking lab. Right. This is like, cool. I like, like it. I'm doing good work here, but I'm yeah. kind of into the fact uh-huh. that this looks like a real sinister environment. <laughs> if you're clinically sociopathic, this seems like a really nice career path for you. Yeah, you can help humanity, but get your get your, get your, <laughs> get your island of Dr. Moreau. That's right. Picks. Next link. Next, Next link. link. Well, since we're talking about yummy stuff, have you guys ever eaten insects before intentionally? Yeah. I yeah. mean, accidentally, never intentionally. I <laughs> what, don't think. what have you eaten, Curtis? Uh, crispy crickets. Yeah. yeah, crickets seem to be like the nice entry level model of right. you know, like you can salt them, you can whatever. Well, there is a Japanese village that eats wasps. Mm. Oh, with the stingers? Uh. Like, I mean, tell me they remove the stingers. I don't. I don't think so. I think oh. that once it's been uh, rendered or processed mm-hmm. or you know prepared in the way that it is. It's a thing. I, I, I've i heard of scorpions. I've heard of spiders, yeah. crickets, obviously. Mm-hmm. But for generations, families across Japan have hunted, raised, and eaten wasps. Mm-hmm. It is a age-old delicacy. It's starting to vanish a little bit as, you know, the population starting to vanish. A lot of people are leaving these traditional villages. Um, They're having trouble with new recruits. <laughs> <laughs> well, not as much trouble. I mean, it's starting to get publicized as a, like, let's keep this tradition alive. There's actually a, there are several festivals that occur for mm. wasp eating, but the largest one mm. is the Kushihara Hebo Matsuri. And Hebo is the local word for two species of black wasps that are known for being relatively non-aggressive and easy to catch. A single kilogram of a wasp's nest is only available once a year in November and can sell for about $81. Wow. Just That's for an ounce, not right? nothing. Different ways that you can eat wasps. The author brought a still wriggling grub to her lips and swiftly ate it alive, <sighs> deemed it light, creamy, and perfectly palatable. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, it's like, you know, I know the idea of eating insects is very freaky. I mean, it's freaky to me. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not like my go-to is not eating insects. But I, <laughs> right, I, that's I, your I, default you mode. Know, I, I think if most people you think about it for a second, it's like, yeah, it's it's going to taste kind of like- yeah, just protein. We, I mean, we eat seafood that's yeah. pretty much just bugs. Yeah, of the bugs sea. of the sea. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's small. It's just going to be kind of yeah. crispy. And it's not alive. You know? I mean, I Maybe think the things crunchy. that really turn people off are the wiggliness mm. and, and the stingers. Again, mm. I'm, I, I really <laughs> have an issue with the stingers because yeah. like bees can sting you after they're dead. Right, right. So I really, I can't imagine- If you have some kind of insect venom allergy, this is probably not probably the 
probably not, not for no. you. <laughs> but there are a lot of arguments to be made for eating insects and that feeding them and caring for them, they take up very little square footage. I mean, it's not necessarily humane, but you can have like stacked layers of them just kind of breeding and pop them in. So the overhead to actually raise insect livestock meant for consumption is pretty low. They're high in protein. Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah, like you said, in Austin, you can get cricket flour, cricket flour based chips. Mm-hmm. So if the idea of getting an antenna stuck between your teeth is as revolting to you as it is to me, <laughs> there are different ways that you can process this. Yeah, to grind make them it. up. Exactly. And it's all right. Yeah. But um, some of the other dishes that you can get at this festival here, I mean, chocolate hebo on sticks. Mm-hmm. So you deep fry and throw some chocolate on them. Apparently, <laughs> this is a particularly good way to consume the Vespa Mandarina Japonica, the Japanese giant hornets, which are notorious for their aggression level and potent sting. Maybe that's kind of like their version of eating like super spicy food, like the more venomous it is, the, the more of a kick <laughs> you get. Like, I got to say, this all sounds a whole lot like a frat hazing ritual. Like, it's like one guy ate a wasp in this Japanese town and was just like if you don't you're not as butch as i am and like it just turned in it got out of hand like yeah is there a spiritual component to it or is there a sense i mean the wasps they're special food right they're connected with this festival or is it like a daily thing well the origins of this unique culinary tradition are something of a mystery while some theories suggest that wasps were once a valuable protein source for this inland community One expert disagrees and says, yeah, you can eat 100 grams of these and have it be high in protein. But in reality, nobody eats that quantity at a time. Right. They're snacks. Yeah. They really basically (laughs) see it as something like they were typically only harvested when people came across them by chance and were eaten merely as a supplemental food source. So basically the insect version of like blackberry picking. Right. You're just wandering along. One lands on you. You chom down. But you make a good point that, you know, whoever the first person to look at a lobster and be like, I'm going to eat that. Yeah. Hats off because it wasn't going to be me. Right. Ditto for the wasp. I mean, I almost kind of want to eat them out of spite because they're so horrible. Oh, they need to be dead one way or the other (laughs) for sure. Wasps are absolute awful, awful creatures. Exactly. And so, you know, younger cultures in Japan who want to honor and keep these kind of elderly traditions alive, they're getting more people that are interested in this. And you can still get them deep fried, lightly crunchy, goes well with a beer. They also make a hibo gohe mochi, which is a grilled sticky rice on a stick coated in a thick sweet sauce made of miso peanuts and wasps. You basically have to pound and mash the larvae to make this whole like wasp sauce. No wasp sauce. That just rolls (laughs) off the tongue. So there's a festival. Um, You can eat these if you want. You do let us know. Yeah, go visit. mm -hmm. Next link. Next Next link. link. Okay, this is from Noble Magazine. It is by Aaron Brown, and the article is How Do Body Parts Grow to Their Right Sizes? Hey, yeah, I don't know. You probably make them transparent first. That would help. (laughs) That would help. I think it probably would help with some of these things here. Well, the answer is to boil it down, we don't get it. Oh, okay. Says Ben Stanger, a researcher at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm betting that was an ending quote, not an opening quote. You can't open your article and be like, how? We don't know. No one finishes reading the article. It's a couple paragraphs. It's a few paragraphs <laughs> in. Uh, but essentially, this is just an interesting thing to think about. <laughs> Isn't that exactly what all of this is That's supposed right. to be? That's right. It's all just cogitation. We should note that on every single thing. Every time we're introducing our article, we'll be like, oh, just an interesting thing to think about. Uh, <laughs> but yes, the principles by which organs know to stop growing mm-hmm. are pretty mysterious. Like, and, we don't know if it's they, genetically defined or chromosomally defined. We don't know. 
know if, for example, body parts are coded to get to a certain size, like, yeah, on the genetic level, and then somehow have a mechanism to stop themselves, or whether there's environmental factors. Mm -hmm. Different experiments have yielded different results. For example, in the 1930s, there was a Yale experiment where zoologists Victor Twitty and Joseph Schwind conducted experiments in salamanders. Now, this is some evil mad scientist, Dr. Moreau stuff. They would, you know, they take two salamanders while they were still pretty young, but one was significantly bigger than the other, mm -hmm. and they transplant a limb. Oh, just to take see, one like, off. And... Oh, okay. Well, will, will the little limb, if properly transplanted to the bigger salamander, will it eventually try to like catch up? Right, get bigger with the scale, or mm. and no. That, that is not the case. The limb will remain smaller as the salamander grows. However, in an, a famous 1960s experiment, researcher Donald Metcalf took an infant mouse's spleen and transplanted it into an adult mouse. And the spleen did go through an accelerated growth mm. to catch up with the rest size of the body. So, so using experiments like this, They've been able to kind of begin some basic categorizations. There's an infographic on the article, not all of which is spelled out, but it says like, you know, some organs self-regulate their growth intrinsically to reach a fixed size. That would include the thymus, cartilage, growth plates, pancreas, kidney, gut. Other organs regulate their size using cues from the environment, like mm -hmm. the liver and the spleen. So there's a set of complicated processes by which there's a feedback loop and like the liver at a certain point realizes because of the presence of other substances in your body that, okay, I'm big enough and Stop. I can, right. you know, all of which is complicated by the fact that, of course, your liver is not deciding to do anything. When we talk about your liver saying stop, we right. mean that proteins and amino acids are reacting to mm -hmm. their environment in ways that cause this to happen. Obviously, this is a key area of ongoing research because of cancer. Mm -hmm. Sure, Out of control wanna... growth is something that devastating to the body and is, is continue to be a leading cause of death. I don't need to tell you about cancer. Everyone knows what cancer <laughs> mm -hmm. is. But um, it seems to be a very interesting area because it could be the case that it's just like almost every part of the body is a little bit different. Has its own blueprint and, for how and it decides. in yeah. terms of how that deepens our appreciation of how insanely unlikely it is that these random processes of evolution could, uh, you're just in awe of the complexity that following the rules of genetics uh, leads to millions and millions and millions of years down the line. So, uh, you know, take a moment if while you're listening to this, take a look at your body. Um, Appreciate your arms. You probably can't see through your skin, but uh, <laughs> maybe yet. you are on the outward edge there and you can <laughs> and just say, uh, wow, how about that? How or about to quote that? the scientist in your article, we don't get it. We don't get it. Yeah. <laughs> we don't get it. Don't get it. Yeah. All right. Next link. Next, next link. link. All right. Well, I got to admit, I picked this next article based entirely on a phrase in the headline. <laughs> Meet the ice doctor who is reviving the frozen science behind Canada's secret weapon for World War II. I didn't know what an ice doctor was. <laughs> I, I, I can was see him in my mind right now. Fascinated. Though. It's kind of like Mr. Freeze, but with a more like lab coat situation. That's right. A little nerdier Mr. Freeze. <laughs> yeah. But like clearly, but definitely in like blue and white overtones. Oh, yeah. Like that's definitely. Uh -huh. Why wasn't Mr. Freeze Dr. Freeze? I mean, he was definitely a doctor. He was a doctor. He was wasn't a science he? guy. He didn't go to school for eight years to be Mr. Freeze. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's so, it's so weird. 
It's not like there's freeze PhD. It's not like making your villain doctor something is. That's is, right. It makes him more yeah. formidable. It yeah, doesn't, I don't it know. doesn't elbow in on other any other Batman villains, does it? There's no other. Maybe it's doc, copyright. Maybe doc. there is a Doctor Freeze somewhere <laughs> that like nobody ever cared about, and he was he was useless, but he's protected IP. Or, so or re, yeah, real world like Doctor Freeze uh, <laughs> medicinal treats. Right. Uh, <laughs> well, this particular ice doctor in the article is a doctor. He has a PhD. It's Dutch professor Arno Pronk, which in <gasps> itself is a fantastic Dr. name. Dr. Pronk. Yes, Ice Dr. Pronk. Uh, his specialty in particular is reinforced ice for construction of buildings, basically the mechanics of uh. the strength of ice. So you know how when you put rebar in concrete, it makes it stronger. There's just a structural addition to it that almost counterintuitively makes the whole block of concrete stronger. The same is true with ice. It turns out that if you use plant fibers, specifically mm. seem to be the best, you create this kind of slurry of water and plant fibers and then freeze it. It is up to three times stronger than regular ice. And by plant fibers, you can use a lot of different things. But in his experiments, for the most part, they use toilet paper. Mm. That just seems to be the most dissolvable easily. When, when are you going to need super strong ice? Well, they, they have reasons for needing it. So the substance with toilet paper and water turned into ice is called picrete. It's named after a guy named Jeffrey Pike, who originally came up with this idea. I don't. I guess he had been experimenting with it beforehand, so he sort of already knew reinforced ice is stronger. But during World War II, he came up with this idea. They had a problem where airplanes on either side of the war could not make it all the way across the Atlantic, couldn't even really get to the middle of the Atlantic, which is why U-boats and submarines were such a vital mm. part of the war effort. But he came up with this idea of if we could build basically a, a, what is now a modern-day aircraft carrier, like out of an iceberg, basically, uh -huh, uh -huh. tow it out to the middle of the ocean. It would just sit there floating. It would be just as strong. Yeah. It would cost about half as much mm -hmm. as a, quote, traditional aircraft carrier. And it would be almost impossible to destroy because especially when you start building on that thickness, it's really hard to break apart and destroy right. an iceberg because it's not going to sink. <laughs> the displacement of the water is massive, and it's very, very hard to destroy well, them, which isn't... they knew because of icebergs like the one that the Titanic ran into. Mm. If they could have gotten rid of them, they would. They were out there, and they knew they were really big problems. Wait, and melting is not a concern? Apparently, when you're out in the middle of the Atlantic, it's cold yeah. enough. I mean, they wouldn't put them down near the equator. They would have them up higher, yeah. so you could sort of make a little triangulation right. hop. So you'd you go just, north, and you'd have an air base on an iceberg, essentially. Right, like, just make this you know, massive iceberg somewhere huh. in the yeah. North Atlantic. And so they were they were working on this. Winston Churchill, like this guy, basically wrote to Winston Churchill and said, "Look, I've got this idea. You should give me money." And Winston Churchill was like, "Yes, we're we're taking any and all ideas. Let's do it." And so they built a test model, basically in a lake in Canada, where they were proving the concept. And they did prove the concept. They built the whole thing and it was great. The main problem that they had come across and they hadn't really solved this yet was towing it is really hard because mm. you've got that deep underwater aspect to it. Right. The, the water resistance is huge. To actually move it out to where it would need to mm -hmm. be would be very difficult. And unfortunately, the whole experiment, which was codenamed Project Habakkuk, <laughs> and incidentally, this ICE aircraft carrier was built almost entirely by Mennonites. Because they were all conscientious objectors in the war. Right. Ah. And part of being a conscientious objector at that time was, okay, but you don't get to stay home and live your life. You kind of have to go to these camps mm. and sit out the war. Mm. And so they had these camps and they said, cool, go over here and you're going to build an iceberg in the middle of this ice lake. Ice fortress. So this, yeah, this ice fortress was built by Mennonites for the most part. And unfortunately, it took enough time that aircraft technology improved. 
and they got to where that they could just fly across. That is unfortunate. I will say that yeah. is important. <laughs> so they were just like, well, now our whole idea is obsolete. Ugh, but it was cool. Some jerk made the airplanes better. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or we could build the ice fortress. Right. But so the Very question is, obviously, we're not in World War II anymore. We have better airplanes. We don't need this stuff. But Arnold Pronk says we could use it on places like Mars for construction. We can construct buildings where the temperature is always cold enough to keep it frozen. Mm -hmm. And it is easier to build your materials on site than to try to ship them through, you know, space. Mm -hmm. And so basically he's saying we can build entire buildings, colony structures out of this ice principle of Mm -hmm. slurrying up the ice and turning it into beams and making yourself some buildings. We don't have that much water on Mars to use as a natural resource. Not that we know of, no. This would be be aspirational if if we could get the water there, which we would have to anyway. Assuming that we had done that, we could also be building our buildings out of ice water and toilet paper. Mm. Yeah, but if water is that critical to human life once you're getting out in space and hauling it out is that expensive, don't you want to just kind of keep it for drinking? Well, I mean, I think they're also maybe hoping maybe we'll find an ice core uh, on Mars. I don't know. I don't People think they have they're... all kinds of crazy. Yeah. Some, some, it was like, yeah, maybe, maybe we can make an asteroid like made of ice to hit Mars. Right, There's just a, you know, re-divert like some, it. Some crazy. What about, I mean, just reinforcing the uh, icebergs we have here on Earth because it's, get, it's getting pretty hot. That's Would true. that be helpful? D- drill re- some cores down and like plug them with toilet paper? <laughs> I think the melting is still going to be a do concern anything? for that though. Like if we're... Well, they said it, it changes the melting point too because they said the, uh, the, the fibers act as insulators. Now, you have to have them evenly distributed. Yeah. A core, unfortunately, would not work. <laughs> you can't have just a little toilet paper roll right down the middle of it. But <laughs> no. they said, yeah, it does actually. It's not that the melting point changes. It retains. It doesn't absorb heat as well as the regular ice would. I gotcha. think, yeah, that would be a great application to sort of restore all of these, you know, glaciers, give the polar bears a little bit more square footage to Oof. just exist on. Like, I could see Disney doing like a frozen theme park. Once all of their natural glaciers and caps are gone, they're like, well, Antarctica's kind of not got anything, but let's make it a frozen winter wonderland. That's and- right. Turn I, it into something. I plan to raise up an army of well-meaning dummies <laughs> to follow me. <laughs> Everyone grab a toilet paper roll and just march north. And when things start to get icy, just, uh, just throw the toilet paper just around. Start, just teach. <laughs> TP the Arctic. TP, yes. TP the Arctic. Oh, that fits on a bumper sticker real well. Absolutely. All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad that you have joined us. If you want to see some of the other articles that we did not get to today, less than a fifth of deep sea life is identifiable, how to generate infinite fake humans, and this is what happens when you take 550 doses of LSD at once. (laughs) So that and everything else we've talked about today and lots more are on damninteresting.com. If you are enjoying the podcast and would like to support us, you can go to patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. And I'm Curtis Luciani. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye. 